People of God, let us turn again to the epistle of First Peter, the first chapter. Last week, we focused on verses 3 through 5, and if because of illness or travel you miss those verses, those are some of the most encouraging verses in all of the Word of God. They really are a high point in Revelation and very essential to understanding what Peter is doing in this epistle, and so I urge you to go back and listen to the exposition of the Word, uh, 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. We pick it up this morning in verses 6 through 12, but we will begin reading at verse 3 so that we recall the entire context. Will you pray with me before the Lord of glory? Almighty God and our Father in heaven, we pray for the powerful work of the Spirit of God within our hearts, that those who know not Jesus Christ will come to the Savior, and that the people of God, those of us who by grace through faith are saved, will continue on in our knowledge of the Lord, deeply being moved and touched in our affections so that we may live biblically, so that we may live God-glorifying lives. And so enable the minister of the word, enable him even now to entrust himself completely to the Holy Spirit, to abandon himself to the Spirit of God, and enable every hearer this morning to abandon himself to the work of the blessed Spirit of God with whom we have fellowship and through whom we have fellowship with the triune God. We ask and pray these things with complete and utter dependence upon the Spirit in the name of Jesus Christ, our precious Savior. Amen. Please take your copy of God's Word and stand. Again, remember 6 through 12 this morning, but we will begin reading at verse 3. This is the Word of God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit 
sent from heaven things into which angels long to look. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. People of God, I remember somewhere Charles Spurgeon speaking of how in the sea there can be one current on the surface and another current below it moving in the opposite direction. Not two seas, not two oceans, but one stream of water on the surface runs one way and another strong current underneath that moves the opposite way. Uh, The Christian life is like that. Uh, One on the surface, a current that is moving, and with it come the rolling dark waves and the boisterous waters, but in the depths underneath, a strong current of great rejoicing. Both of those things happen in the Christian life as we long for our heavenly home, and that is because of the living hope to which we have been born, the certain hope of which we saw last week. That theme continues in verses 6 through 12, and especially the relationship between that hope to which we move, which moves the undercurrent in the sea of our lives, the relationship between hope and joy is underscored. And so as we come to this text, the first thing that we want to see, the first thing is Christian hope leads to present joy. Christian hope leads to present joy joy. We see it in verse 6. In this you rejoice in all that he has told us about the inheritance and our being guarded for that inheritance and the return of Christ. In this you rejoice. Now there are some commentators who assume the rejoicing is simply related to verse 5 and to the return of Christ, but surely that is not correct. Surely what the Apostle Peter is saying is that the promised future is that which so informs our lives that you rejoice now. Looking to the future, you rejoice because of the coming of Christ and the inheritance that awaits you. What a good pastor Peter is. Did you notice this? He does not mention trials until he first calls their attention very thoroughly to the inheritance that has been purchased for them through the blood of Christ and to the return of Christ in the last day. You see, the trials that we have are put in perspective when we have that eternal view of things that he has opened up already for us in verses 3 through 5. Trials for the Christians, for the believers, are not condemnations. Sometimes we may be tempted to think so. Sometimes we may feel as if our trials as believers are condemnations, but no, The condemnation, the wrath of God, struck the heart of Jesus Christ in your place. The thunder cracked over his head as he died upon the cross. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no trial that comes into your life as a believer that is a condemnation. Jesus has borne it all. No, no, the trials that come into your lives are for God's glory and for our good, and they are ordained for our holiness. Every trial, no matter what the trial may be, comes into the Christian's life and is meant in love. As Whitfield said, sanctified afflictions are signs of special love. 
even in the confusing things, even in the unhappy circumstances, even in those things which, which cause turmoil in the soul, even when incomprehensible trials come into our lives, you have God's Word for it. It is ordained for His glory, for your good, and for your holiness of life as a believer. Well, hence the paradox of the two currents, the churning waters in life on the surface, but underneath, as we are focused upon the return of Jesus Christ, the current of joy that nothing and no one and no circumstance can take from us or destroy. Robert Murray McShane somewhere put it this way very beautifully, one part of the body may rejoice and another be sick. A man may have a thorn in his foot and yet taste something sweet at the same time. Yea, the taste may be so excellent as to drown the pain. So it is with the soul. It is, its source is joy that is infinite. We are born, are we not, unto a living hope, people of God. And McShane goes on to say, as the rainbow is brighter, the darker the cloud, so is this joy very often. As the seabird delights to ride the top of the angry billows, so does this joy of the Christian ride upon the wave top. Pain in one part does not hinder a great joy in the other. Their thirst of fever makes the draught more pleasant. Well, that is what is being taught in this passage, in this, in these wondrous promises that we have read in verses 3 through 5, you rejoice. Now, let me give you an encouragement from the, these verses, from verse 6. In verse 6, when we read, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. That word grieved is essentially the same word that the Lord Jesus uses in Matthew and in Mark. When going to the cross, he says, my soul is exceeding troubled unto death, or my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even unto death. Or it could be translated, my soul is exceedingly grieved unto death. And so even though grievous things come into your life, people of God, He is the one who has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He went before you bearing your griefs and carrying that load that you now bear so that there is no condemnation in that load and there is nothing that will destroy you, but He guards and keeps you. He is the one who went to the cross in your place. He is the one who bore the wrath of God for you so that what comes to you now is actually blessing in disguise. My soul is exceeding sorrowful unto death. Well, Christian hope leads to present joy. But also, secondly, hope enables us to rejoice in trials. Hope, that future hope that is focused on the return of Christ, hope enables us to rejoice in trials. And Peter gives to us four reasons that that hope enables us to rejoice in our trials. The first reason is that they are short-lived. Again, verse 6, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Now, Peter is not saying here, uh, oh, I'm so glad that trial is over. That's not his point. His point is, contrasted with the promise of the future, 
that is guaranteed to the people of God. Though now for a season, or the ESV, for a little while you suffer. Contrasted with this glory that awaits you, your trials are short-lived. Now in verse 6, it literally could be translated, you have been made sorrowful, or you have been made to grieve. There is suffering that is coming from without. These Christians should not have been treated this way by their neighbors in the persecution of these churches in Asia Minor. They are suffering because of those things inflicted upon them, but still there is joy because those sufferings are short-lived. Indeed, there is what someone has called a transvaluation of values, so that because Jesus rose from the dead and because Jesus has purchased you and because Jesus is coming again, now trials are actually blessings. Your trials are portals to eternity. They are adding, every trial is adding to the weight of glory to which you are moving in your Christian life and experience. And so we rejoice because these trials are short-lived. But secondly, we rejoice because our trials have meaning. Your trials have meaning. The first part of verse 7, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold. There is a meaning here. The depth and difficulty of our trials evidences the preciousness of faith. Now, sometimes when we're undergoing trials, we have no idea what God is doing except the broad concept of His glory and our good and holiness of life. But it is totally God's secret. We do not know how it fits into His perfect plan for us. Sometimes it is to chastise us and bring us back, and that is sometimes easily recognizable. Sometimes I think for ministers in particular, it is to make us more useful. As someone has written, we must be ground between the millstone of suffering before we can be bred for the multitude. But always, even when we do not know the reason, always it is to make manifest the approved character of your faith which is the result of the testing. Now, the word that is used here for approved character or for your testing, dakamadzo, is a term that would have been associated with the, uh, the purification of metals. And there is a comparison here to gold, so that the genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As the passage that was read from Malachi 3, Jesus is the refiner who will purify the sons of Levi, just as the purification of gold and silver would take place. So a miner finds some ore, and he is not sure if it is gold, and he takes it to the assayer, and he says, well, we will find out. Put it in the furnace, and then we can tell we can prove its character. And so in verse 7, he uses also the noun form, dakamion, a proved character which is the result of the testing. The Lord is not so concerned with our comfort in this world, people of God, but he is deeply concerned with our holiness of life. He is faithfully concerned to make us holy. Should this not then be our goal as well? 
If the Lord's concern in your trial is His glory and your holiness, then shouldn't my concern in my trials be God's glory and to grow in holiness of life, not simply to get out of the trial? Should this not be our goal? Trials are designed to refine our faith, according to verse 7, to grow us and to make us holy. The Lord knows what trials are needed in my life to root out idols and to make me more Christ-like, and He knows what trials are needed in your life to root out idols and to make you Christ-like as well. And so what He is saying here, and everyone who would have read it in that day would have known is that when you take the ore to the goldsmith, the goldsmith would put the ore into a crucible and he would heat up the ore. And then the whole vat would become liquefied. And as it became hot and liquefied, gradually the impurities would rise to the top and then they would be skimmed off. And when the metal worker would see his reflection on the surface, then and only then would he remove the cauldron from the fire, because then he knows he has pure gold. That is what God is doing in your life. He is so refining you, and he loves you, and he, you think the fire is too hot. He knows exactly how much fire my life needs to make me holy so that he can remove the impurities from my heart because his goal in my life and yours is to see his own reflection, to remove the impurities and to leave pure gold. No one wants to get rid of the gold. God is not trying to get rid of you. He wants to see himself, his own character reflected in your refined faith. Your trials have meaning, and that is the ultimate meaning. But there's a third reason that he gives to enable us to rejoice in our trials. We rejoice because our trials glorify Jesus Christ. Look at the end of verse 7. The point of this testing is that it may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You find this again in chapter 2, verse 9, and chapter 4, verse 11. Our faith will be found to result in praise and glory and honor. Knowing that the Lord is honored should change my and should change your attitude in suffering. Young people on some occasion read that book, Tortured for Christ, by Richard Wormbrand, a Lutheran minister who suffered so under communism. It's an amazing book, and there were such trials and sufferings that, quite frankly, I would not repeat some of them from this pulpit. They were horrible trials through which these, these prisoners endured communist torture. And yet the amazing thing was the joy that filled the believers in these prisons. So that, for example, they would sing, even though they had been beaten, knowing that they would be beaten more for having sung. But their hearts were so filled with Jesus Christ, they could not help but sing. It's an amazing thing. Paul and Silas, there in prison, singing. That's 
Christian joy. And notice again how essential to live in view of the return of Christ may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He uses that word again. Carnock the Puritan says, the greater inquiry of the day of Christ's appearing will be how good men bear their sufferings, what improvements they had, and the greater their purity by them, the greater will be their praise and honor. But this logically leads to a fourth reason that we praise. We rejoice because our trials increases anticipation, anticipation of the return of Christ, anticipation of the inheritance that awaits us. And so we read in verse 8, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now notice how verse 8 is connected with verse 7, honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. There is this connection and this relationship. You have never seen Christ. Now Peter had, and there are places in Peter that we will see in which his memory of his earthly ministry will come through. But he writes to those who have never seen him and yet know him and believe in him. And that's us who are here this morning. Undoubtedly, he has in mind that experience with Thomas in which he said to Thomas in John 20, 29, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now look at verse eight again. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Now implies a contrast with then. The time will come when you will see the Savior that you love, the Savior in his glory, the Savior in his beauty, the one who bought you, who purchased you. You will see him and you will, you will love him. And the point is that this future reality spills over now into our lives from the future, producing a joy so profound that it is beyond words, as the old version says, joy unspeakable and full of glory. I challenge you who have known the joy of Jesus Christ deep within your soul in the midst of trials to explain to someone that joy that so fills your heart that is beyond your ability to express. The Christian's joy in trials is a coal blown upon by the unseen bellows of heaven, and it blazes more and more as we keep in mind Jesus is coming again. Some of you small children that are here right now, if I tell you that Christmas is coming, I would be willing to say you probably, if you think about it for a few minutes, have a certain sense of excitement in your heart. Even though this is February, <laughs> you will think about Christmas sometimes during the year. Oh, I wish Christmas were here. I know how children do that. I did it. Oh, time out of school, time to play, time with friends, good food, family, and presents. And so you long for something that is future. Children, that is what Peter is saying here. The Christian grows and matures to long for that future blessing 
and we become genuinely excited and joyful no matter what's happening in our lives. Or some of you who are contemplating marriage, and you are thinking, oh, oh, I wish that time would come. I, 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 I'm, I'm going to marry that fellow, some girl is thinking, and he's going to be all mine. I hope the fellow knows it, by the way. But <laughs> maybe the fellow's thinking, that girl is, his, oh, she'll be all mine. And there is an excitement and an anticipation that ought to be there as you consider what marriage is all about. That's what he's saying. I will see Jesus. I'm going to see my Savior. Do you long to see Jesus? Do you long to see your Savior? Already you know Him. But in that day, you will see Him face to face. And you have already in principle received the promised outcome, the salvation of your souls. Verse 9, what strong, intense, impassioned feeling is found in this section. And it stems from these two realities. From living expectantly, Every generation of Christians is called to live as if we will be the generation when Jesus Christ will come again. From living expectantly and from the inseparable link between love and joy. Again, verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Let me ask you, do you find it hard when you are going through deep and serious trials, do you find it hard not to sin? Do you find it hard to grow in holiness? How can we grow in holiness, especially in trials? I will tell you, the only answer is love. The only way you'll ever grow in holiness is love. You'll never grow in holiness by being a legalist. You'll never grow in holiness by being an antinomian. It's only when your heart is filled with gospel love, with evangelical love. Love is the only road to holiness. McShane said somewhere, if you are visited with seasons of coldness and indifference, if you begin to be weary or lag behind in the service of God, behold, here is the remedy. Look again to the bleeding Savior. Know and sense and feel within your heart, people of God, you're loved and love Him in return. But Peter adds to that. Peter says also, look ahead to your coming Savior. And let that truth and reality fill your lives. O oh Lord, haste the day when the fate shall be sight. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. We just sang it. This is the truth that Peter is expounding in this passage for us. Well, let's make this a third point. A third point. A long-ago promise and an inspected hope. A long-ago promise and an inspected hope. And we've been asking the question under that second point, why should we rejoice in the midst of trials? And we were given four answers because they are short-lived, uh, because our trials have meaning, uh, because our trials glorify Christ, 
and because it increases anticipation. But now he's going to give you two other reasons for rejoicing. And we find them in verses 10 through 12. Let's read those verses again. Concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So why should you rejoice in trials? He gives two reasons here too. The first reason is let the Old Testament prophets tell you why. Let the Old Testament prophets tell you why you should rejoice in trials. And he uses two terms, the prophets sought out and sought also with meticulous, in meticulous detail to understand the prophecies that were given to them and when Christ would come and what the meaning was of his sufferings and of his subsequent glory. They were enthralled by the message given to them. The prophets live with their faces to the future, expecting the promise of salvation, just as you should live with your face to the future in light of the fulfillment of those prophecies. And so they testify beforehand of Christ's sufferings and the glories to follow. Do you see the order? They prophesied of the Savior's suffering and the subsequent glories, suffering and then glory. We Christians are simply following in the footsteps of our Lord and Master who gave himself for us, who suffered, who came down, who became incarnate, who obeyed the law, who went to the cross, and then was exalted to the right hand of the Father. We Christians are following the footsteps of our Lord. Now I'm going to read something to you from John Calvin, and you're good listeners. So listen to what he says, because he picks up this theme so beautifully. Calvin says that they might bear submissively their afflictions. He reminds them that they had been long ago foretold by the Spirit. But he includes much more than this, for he teaches us that the church of Christ has been from the beginning so constituted that the cross has been the way to victory and death a passage to life, and that this had been clearly testified. There is therefore no reason why affliction should above measure depress us, as though we were miserable under them, since the Spirit of God pronounces us blessed. The order is to be noticed. He mentions sufferings first and then adds the glories which are to follow. For he intimates that this order cannot be changed or subverted. Afflictions must precede glory. So there is to be understood a twofold truth in these words. That Christians must suffer many troubles before they enjoy glory. And that the afflictions are not evils because they have glory annexed to them. Since God has ordained this connection, it does not behoove us 
to separate the one from the other. And it is no common consolation that our condition, such as we find it to be, has been foretold so many ages ago. Hence we learn that it is not in vain that a happy end is promised to us. Secondly, we hence know that we are not afflicted by chance, but through the infallible providence of God. And lastly, that prophecies are like mirrors to set forth to us tribulations, the image of the celestial glory. So when you go through a trial, there's suffering than glory, but your Savior suffered and rose and ascended. You already, by faith, are in union with Him, seated on the right hand of the Father. You will be with Him in glory. And every trial is a mirror, says Calvin, you see, a mirror that enables you to, to see the future reflected in your struggle. That's what he's saying to us. Isn't it wonderful? The witness of the prophets is an essential part of our faith. The word that they wrote by inspiration is part of the word of God to treasure in our hearts. Where would you in tri trial be without Isaiah 53 or Psalm 22? And then he says in verse 12, that those who preach to them and those who now preach, you see, in the spirit of Pentecost, because he has Pentecost in mind, undoubtedly, preach the same with the same spirit that inspired the words of the prophet that now illumine the page of Scripture and illumine your hearts so that in trials you should attach yourself more tenaciously to the word and not less. How often do I say to us, Life without the Word of God is absurd. Young people, life without the Word of God is absurd. And what I've seen often as a pastor and have felt in my own life and have had to believe and repent, you go through a trial and the time can, it can push you away from the Word, from meaningful time with communion with God. No, no, no. The prophets wrote these things longing for the one whom you now know and in whom you believe. And now you have that word, the complete word of God. And as you go through your trial, go more deeply into the word, not less so. Go more deeply into communion with God, not less so, with dependence on the Spirit. As Watts said, come Holy Spirit, heavenly dove, with all thy quickening power, kindle a sacred flame of love in these cold hearts of ours. So why should you rejoice in the trials? Look to the prophets. But then he also says, why should you rejoice in trials? Let the angels tell you. Notice how he put it at the end, that beautiful ending of verse 12. Speaking of this good news that was, that was preached and sent from heaven by the Spirit of God, things into which angels long to look. Now the word here, Parakupto. Kupto is to bend. Para is alongside. And so you are seeing the angels who are bending alongside, observing. They are peering, they are peeking, they are stretching their head forward to look into the salvation that you, by grace, possess. It's the word used in John 20, verse 5, when Peter, stooping to look in, saw the linen cloths lying there in the tomb. Used again, I think, in verse 11 of, John, of chapter 20, when Mary also 
peeked in the tomb. But you see, the modern commentators seem to miss the obvious. I'm sorry. What, what is, to what is he directing our minds? Do you remember he said in those opening verses that we are people sprinkled with blood? What does he have in mind? It's the Ark of the Covenant. It's, it's those images of, of the, the cherubim stretching out to one another, their great mass of wings touching, and they're peering over upon the Ark of the Covenant, representing the amazement of those angels that blood would be shed to satisfy the wrath of God and propitiate His anger and to redeem His people. And now He looks at you and your salvation, this angel and that angel. And what does He see? He sees propitiatory blood, the sprinkling of your conscience with the blood of Jesus Christ. He sees you to be a purchased possession. The angels long to look in this. You see, you, you go through your trial and what do you, you think? I mean, this is hard. You see the the hardship, and you see the struggle, and you see the pain. You feel the pain. Maybe some of you just through your Christian life see the ordinary. Nothing special happening in my life. Oh, you don't know. You just don't know. The angels see the marvel of it all. They see sinners being saved by sovereign free grace. That's what they see when they look upon us. People all over this room that are being saved, whose hearts are sprinkled by the blood of atonement, who are guarded for their inheritance, who are being chastised in the almighty love of an eternal Father, who are being loved all the way to your eternal home. That's what the angels see. And I just wonder, I don't want to overstress this possibility, but I just wonder if, if the, the Apostle Peter wants us to latch on to the preposition that he puts with bend, which means alongside, para, so that perhaps even in this room at this moment, Remember how we've talked about the spiritual realities around us? Maybe these angels even now are peeking here and here. This one, that one, this other one. Under the blood, under the value of the atonement, saved by sovereign grace. Look, they may be saying one to another, look at what God is doing in this Sinner's life, he doesn't even see it. Well, if you ask the angels, it will help you see it, won't it? What should we look for? What should we see? We should see grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. Yes, in the midst 
even of the deepest trial. There's grace for the child of God. For the salvation that has been purchased, of which the writer speaks, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls, verse 9. But if you are here this morning and you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, you do not yet know that salvation. Do not die unacquainted with that salvation. Do not die without knowing Jesus yourself. Do not die and go into a Christless eternity without knowing this Redeemer and this Savior as your Redeemer and your Savior. Now let me bring this to the conclusion. People of God, again McShane, you know I love McShane. McShane says, a knot is all the tighter the more you pull on it. Iron is all the stronger the more you beat it. In times when all is bright, it is hard to look beyond. In learning to swim, the thing which strengthens our stroke is the opposing billows. Swimming up the stream strengthens us most. In learning to wrestle, you do not sit still. And that is what God is doing in trials for you, believer. And therefore, in light of these truths, let us not be among those who despise trials. I'm not saying that you shouldn't recognize that they're hard and that it's a struggle, but do not despise them. Because the end in view, the end in view is a tried faith. None of the real gold will be lost in the furnace. The dross is consumed. Your gold is refined. The dross is consumed. Your gold is refined. The gold is, is God's gold. He will have it. And the goal that he stretches before us is a strong, growing faith, loving him who is unseen, his praise that is coming, that he sees his own reflection in your life. People of God, this is joy unspeakable and full of glory. And God's people said, Amen.